This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and we are at episode number 199. So, we are on the shoulders of giants, as they say. And speaking of which, an email from John yesterday, former editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, sent me a very interesting little piece from the Silver Institute. And Silver has just continued. It's like the 20s. It almost went right to $30. I don't know if it made it to $30, but it was knocking on the door. It's like the 20s barely, you know, you barely saw them before it jumped from 19 over to $20. And before you know it, it was $29. As I speak, I see $28.16. It's down a touch from yesterday. Gold is back down below $2,000. And that is interesting. Actually, all the commodities are down a bit. We'll see that in metal prices also coming up. But yeah, gold back down below $2,000. An interesting thing I'm hearing as I watch and listen to too many analysts out there, just because I love doing that sort of thing, is uh, beware of the notion of a dollar crash. They may be a little premature, a little overstated, and... It sounds like the smart money is saying that actually what we're seeing is the unwinding of the safety trade when in March and April people couldn't get enough dollars. That was the safety trade. Go to the U.S. dollar when you don't know where to go. And now we're seeing the dollar really drop precipitously in the last little while. And we've seen the commodities conversely, which are negatively correlated to the U.S. dollar, they have been rising But people are saying, beware of this supposed impending dollar crash coming. That may be premature. And what we may be looking at is just a pullback. And what that would mean is that the precious metals and also commodities in general may be in for a bit of a pullback themselves if the dollar starts to strengthen again. So... Lots going on, and just looking at the Silver Institute piece that John sent, silver price rises above $28 per ounce, up 140% from 2020 low. So if you're smart enough to buy, it says here, at $11.64 on March 18th, you have rallied over 140%, and now silver is at a level not seen since 2013. And then you get all the supposed reasons. The silver price hike has been fueled by its inherent safe haven status, fears of inflation, remarkably low interest rates, and continued liquidity boosts by central banks. The jump in price reflects renewed interest by both retail and institutional investors in silver as an investment vehicle. You know, this seems like all speculation to me. Like, I mean, these I'm, I think these are reasons that people give. I think the dollar weakness, which is not listed here, was the real culprit. So, I mean, I'm just some editor podcast host guy. They're the Silver Institute, so you probably want to take their word for it. But to me, it was the dollar. But you know what? In the end, it's probably a combination of all of these factors together. Maybe they just missed the dollar. Or maybe it's even in one of these. Maybe it's in the fear of inflation reason. So 
Just before we move on from this little piece, it's kind of interesting. The silver price rallied 34% in July alone, outpacing every major global financial asset. July represented one of the best months for silver on record and its highest monthly gain since 1979. Global silver-backed exchange-traded products have posted all-time highs in 2020, currently standing at 1.25 billion ounces, having increased by 296 million ounces since January 1st to today. It's written on August 6th. Silver coin demand is robust, up over 60% to date this year. And the gold-silver ratio, the quantity of silver ounces needed to buy an ounce of gold, peaked at 127 to 1 on March 18th and now stands at 72 to 1, a decrease of 43%. And I think even as of today, I think that's even lower. So historic times in the silver market. And speaking of historic times, we celebrate the ongoing history of the Northern Miner at the Global Mining Symposium, a new conference that we're having on September 1st to 3rd. And that is in the tradition of our Canadian Mining Symposium. I think this is going to be a quarterly event. I'm not sure. You can register today. We now have the ads on the Northern Miner website. Just go to northernminer.com, click on the banners, and you'll be taken to a page with our speakers and panelists. And they feature so far... Michelle Ash, CEO of Geovia, Dassault System, Paul Brink, President and CEO of Franco Nevada, Clive Johnson, who we're going to have on for a thought leadership piece next week. Uh, he is President and CEO of B2 Gold, and Peter Maroney, Executive Chairman of Yamana Gold. And he's returning. It wasn't this year he was at the Canadian Mining Symposium, but he was there last year. So a return guest, I guess he had a good time, and many, many more, even Ronald Peter Stufferl, who is a up-and-coming gold analyst. We'll see how he measures against Jeffrey Christian. No pressure, Ronald Peter. And yeah, that's all coming up in 21 days. 21 days, only three weeks away. 21 days, one hour and 55 minutes. Register for free. And if you are a sponsor and looking to be a part of it, uh, check out the sponsorship information button. So with that, if you want to find us online, go to northernminer.com. If you want to find us on Twitter, go to at northernminer. You can find us on Instagram at the northernminer and Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and more. So with that, let's turn to the news. And I wanted to start out basically just touching on an article, which is actually what our main interview is going to be about. It's this Canadian research program that is, as the title says, seeks to transform our understanding of how ore bodies form. And this was written by Carl A. Williams, and it's about a really cool Canadian research project. And this is based out of Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, and the program is called Metal Earth, and they're putting in $104 million into a applied research and development program, and this is led by the Mineral Exploration Research Center, also known as Merck, and again, they're based out of Laurentian University, and they also have strategic partnerships with five Canadian universities, six government geological surveys, and three international research centers. So just as a preview, we're going to talk to Carl about this. And basically what they're trying to do 
is get a better understanding of how ore bodies form. Now, key word here is ore, and that was the first word I relearned what the meaning was at the Northern Miner, because I used ore just to mean anything that has metal in it when I first started working at the Northern Miner. And John took me aside and said, well, as a matter of fact, ore properly defined is rock that you can profitably extract metal from. So that is what ore is. So that's a key word to understand here because they're looking, this research program is looking of new ways to find ore bodies, new ore bodies. And part of the problem is mining traditionally uses, I don't even know if it's a real word, but I've seen it used on TV and yeah, heard people talk about it, closology. It doesn't sound very Latin. It sounds very Anglo as far as the ologies are concerned. And using closology or what you might call brownfield sites, so sites that are close to other mines is the main way of finding mines. And so they're trying to really build it from the ground up, re-look at how ore bodies form. It's a fascinating article. We're going to get in depth with Carl, our science reporter, senior reporter at the Northern Miner. And so that is coming up. So I just wanted to preview that for you. And you can find that online. There's some awesome pictures on there. Good work, Carl. And moving on. So speaking of Canada, it has just come out as President Trump has been campaigning. And it sounds like they want to reimpose a 10% tariff on Canadian aluminium. The U.S. government is saying that they are going to reimpose a 10% tariff on aluminium imports from Canada as of August 16th. Now, this came right after the free trade agreement was ratified. Maybe there was bitterness that Justin didn't show up at the signing, because remember, it's just the Mexican president and the U.S. president in Washington. So anyways, President Donald Trump announced during a campaign event at a Whirlpool plant in Clyde, Ohio, on August 6th, that the tariffs would be returning. The Canadian government, in response, has said it will impose a $3.6 billion tariff on U.S. aluminum products starting from September 16th. In a written statement on August 7th, Canadian Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland promised, quote, to swiftly impose dollar-for-dollar dollar countermeasures. Trump's 10% tariff will be levied on unwrought, unalloyed aluminium produced at smelters, but does not apply to imports of downstream aluminium products, the U.S. president said, noting that the tariffs were reinstated to defend U.S. aluminium producers from cheaper products from Canada. Now, this is just pure memory. I thought he had to use a national security clause in order to put on this tariff. And so this reasoning here is different. It's saying it's to protect U.S. aluminum producers from cheaper products. So I don't know what they signed that free trade agreement for. Like, I'm not sure what that's all about if all of a sudden a month later we're putting tariffs on each other. Doesn't sound like a very successful situation. Anyways, uh, Augustine Lowe, an attorney at law firm Dorsey and Whitney, told the Northern Miner that, quote, while seemingly narrow, this class of good constitutes the largest share of Canadian aluminum exports to the United States. Assuming this 10% tariff proceeds, it could significantly impact the aluminum market from competing U.S. producers of primary aluminum 
to producers of secondary aluminium from recycled goods that could compete with imported primary aluminium to, and to downstream users of aluminium across all industries, Lowe said. Yeah, and you think of just, it's not a small thing. That metal is everywhere from cars to soft drinks to, you know, go to Home Depot. It's probably everywhere. Now, one of the interesting contradictions of this tariff policy, and I think the free traders would be sort of snickering at this. Uh, Although the president claimed that a surge of Canadian aluminium into the U.S. market would, quote, kill all our aluminium jobs, she continued, data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics show that there are far more people working in industries that use aluminium, right? And here it is, quote, for every one person working in the aluminium industry, 177 people are working in aluminium-consuming industries such as construction, transportation, auto and aerospace, electrical equipment, and household appliances, said McDaniel, whose research focuses on international trade, globalization, and intellectual property rights. That's Christine McDaniel, a senior research fellow from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in Virginia. So she continues, so this tariff will be particularly harmful to downstream industries. So unintended consequences, perhaps. Let's see. That's the latest. That's big news. Continuing on with the American theme. So remember the massive pebble mine in Alaska that just got pushed through? I forwarded my big theory that it's being pushed by the Trump administration and in the last few months before the election. However, Donald Trump Jr., Junior has come out and he says he calls for blocking the pebble mine. And so I actually got a couple of emails from people I know saying, you know, basically so much for your Trump pushing it through theory. Look, Junior doesn't want the mine. However, I still think that maybe Junior just wasn't in the meeting and that maybe it was pushed from above and that there just wasn't good communication on this between Father and son, I'm not letting go of my theory yet. But anyways, let's take a closer look. Opponents of Northern Dynasty Minerals proposed pebble copper gold molybdenum mine in Alaska found a new ally on Tuesday as U.S. President Donald Trump's son, Donald Jr., took to Twitter to oppose the project supported by his father's administration. Trump Jr. said he, quote, 100% unquote, agreed with Vice President Mike Pence's former chief of staff, Nick Ayers, in opposing the mine. Quote, as a sportsman who has spent plenty of time in the area, I agree 100%. The headwaters of Bristle Bay and the surrounding fishery are too unique and fragile to take any chances with. Hashtag Pebble Mine. His comments come less than two weeks after Northern Dynasty secured a final environmental impact review from the Army Corps of Engineers for the mine, and the decision opened the door for the Canadian miner to obtain the federal go-ahead as soon as late August. The Bristle Bay area where the mine would be located is the world's largest commercial sockeye salmon producing region. Opponents of the project have long feared its discharges could contaminate local waters causing irreparable damage to the aquatic habitat. Trump Jr.'s concerns are shared by a group of politicians, including Republican U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. And we'll just see what he said before we move on. My staff and I are continuing to review the Army Corps of Engineers' final environmental impact statement, but I'm increasingly concerned that the final review may not adequately address the issues identified in the draft review regarding the full risks of the project as proposed to the Bristle Bay watershed and fishery, Sullivan said. 
I also continue to make sure that Alaska's voices are being heard on this project at the highest levels of government, including the White House. The controversy at the Pebble Mine is not over. It feels like there's a movie in the works here. And we've got this great picture of Junior with a really big redfish. So, go figure. Uh, now, continuing on the ESG front, if we could call the last story ESG, Fortescue has said that they are pausing on a plan that endangers an Australian heritage site. And lest we forget, this comes on the heels of Rio Tinto uh, blowing up the 46,000-year-old archaeological site in Australia, seemingly on purpose, and actually quite clearly on purpose from what I can tell. And so let's take a look here. Australian iron ore major Fortescue Metals Group said today it would reevaluate an expansion plan at one of its iron ore mines in the Pilbara region after an indigenous group said the project threatened sacred sites, including a 60,000-year-old rock shelter. Now, you do wonder, like I'm all for protecting the archaeological sites to the end of time, but you do wonder when you start hearing about it being a rock shelter. <laughs> you know, what what rock is not a shelter? But I'm sure they have more to it than that. But uh, yeah, now, cave painting, do not touch, you know. Uh, but there is, a, it's a spectrum of, uh, at a certain point, you do have to develop stuff. But I'm all for let's pause and and see before we blow anything up, as Rio Tinto irresponsibly did. So let's continue. Fortescue's decision comes after fellow miner Rio Tinto, number one iron ore producer, blew up a 46,000-year-old sacred indigenous site in Western Australia in May. While the company has apologized for the decision, CEO Jean-Sébastien Jacques revealed today that it had other options but rejected them. In a sense, this story has become more about Rio Tinto than Fortescue. Rio Tinto's boss acknowledged that the move allowed the company to access about 8 million tons of high-value iron ore. So Fortescue hits pause, and good for them. Now we're going to see a quote from the CEO. Elizabeth Gaines said in a call with analysts that the company's primary objective was to avoid cultural heritage damage. company's primary objective was to avoid cultural heritage damage. Power of ESG. Fortescue Group Metals' primary objective was to avoid cultural heritage damage. Wow. She added that Fortescue has consulted with local indigenous groups before designing the mine plan in question. Quote, as a result of this constructive consultation, we expect to achieve avoidance of significant cultural heritage beyond the current two-year mine plan. Fortescue says it has protected almost 6,000 Aboriginal cultural heritage sites across its operations. And so on and on it goes. You can read more of that on thenorthernminer.com. That was by Cecilia Jamasmi. And continuing on, BHP in another ESG story is paying $840 million, almost a billion dollars, $840 million to end coal energy dependence in Chile and BHP, which I believe is the world's largest miner, is poised to pay a total of $840 million to end a 2008 energy contract with a coal-fired thermoelectric plant. And this feeds energy to its Escondida and Spence copper mines in northern Chile. The move follows a series of recent steps BHP has taken to become an environmentally friendly miner, including carbon capture and storage and other innovations such as direct air capture, 
The coal burning contracts originally expired in 2026 at Spence and 2029 at Escondida. You see the pressure. I think this ESG pressure is real. They could have just said, you know what, by the end of the decade, we'll be okay. No, they feel the need to do it now. So BHP's Escondida operation will have to disperse $730 million in nine installments from August 2021 and Spence $109 million at the end of August this year. So isn't that interesting? And they're also, BHP is also aiming to eliminate the use of water from aquifers in Chile by 2030. So they're not ready to do the big move yet on the water. They're just going to wait the 10 years. At Spence, a desalination plant with a capacity of 1,000 liters per second was expected to support a $2.5 billion expansion. The project, originally slated to be completed by the end of this year, was recently deferred until early 2021 due to the coronavirus pandemic, BHP said in April. Lest we forget, it was only last week or the week before that Chile's environmental watchdog said it would charge BHP and threatened to revoke their mining license at Escondida because they have been consuming more than their water permit has allowed them for the last 15 years. And they more than tripled the allowance last year. So could be a move in a way of trying to put water in the wine of the regulators who are looking at what to do at Escondida with the water infractions. And finally, we have one more story here. Glencore loses $2.6 billion and has eliminated their dividend. And they have losses and write downs for the first half of the year as the coronavirus pandemic dented global demand and lowered prices and production at its mining division. So interesting, Glencore posted $1.5 billion in adjusted earnings before interest and taxes, but booked $3.2 billion in impairment charges. So the company said it was putting balance sheet strength ahead of shareholder returns as net debt climbed 12% to $19.7 billion at the end of June. It's a lot of money to owe. The increase in borrowings came as Glencore tapped its credit lines to take advantage of falling oil prices in March and April. It bought cheap crude and sold it in the futures market for a profit. As a result, its marketing business performed especially well with full-year earnings expected to come in at the top end of its $2.2 to $3.2 billion range after hitting $2 billion in the first half. And CEO Ivan Glazenberg said the board had concluded it would be, quote, inappropriate to make a distribution to shareholders in 2020, hence the elimination of the dividend. Instead, the firm will focus on debt reduction after pouring money into the oil trading business to cash in on volatile price swings. And those are your news stories on to metal prices. Prices, a, another dramatic week in the gold and silver and metals markets. If you want to find these prices for yourself, simply go to mining.com slash markets. And there are some really nice charts, a really nice list, and all the prices. So go check that out. And on August 11th, gold is at $1,944.98. That is $29 lower than last week's quote, and we got $2,000 above there in the meantime. So it is pulled back sharply today. Silver is at $26.89 per ounce. 
That is $2.59 higher than last week's quote. Platinum is at $946.57 per ounce. That is $17 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is at $2,111.63. And that is $6 lower than last week's quote. And on August 7th, copper is at $2.92 per pound. And that is unchanged from last week. Aluminum is 79 cents per pound. That is three cents higher than last week and continuing a uh, upward trend. Lead is also three cents higher at 87 cents per pound. Also continuing a pretty steady upward trend. Mickle is at $6.50 per pound. That is 26 higher than last week. Really taking off. And tin also continues to go higher at $8.14 per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. And cobalt is also higher, and that is $1.83 higher at $15.01 per pound. And zinc is also higher at $1.09. That is five cents higher than last week. And we haven't seen those kind of numbers on zinc for close to, geez, at least six or seven months ago. So looking at that, we got a pullback in gold. Silver maintains its weekly upward trend, but we could see a pullback there as well. Platinum and palladium seem pretty steady, and industrial metals continue to show strength. So we might summarize precious metals press pause and industrial metals hit the gas, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Carl A. Williams, senior reporter and science reporter for the Northern Miner website and newspaper. And what's great about Carl is he is a very educated man. He has a PhD in analytical chemistry, a master's of science, radiation and environmental protection, Bachelor's of Science with Honors in Physics with Laser Physics, and he's also a dive instructor. So how's that for having a good, rounded-out education? And he's going to talk to us about this great program that's coming out of Laurentian University. And really, it's, they are trying to almost reconceptualize how we find ore bodies and ore systems. And Carl did a deep dive. He interviewed... Uh, some of the major players involved, and it's a very fascinating interview, so I'm going to get right to it. I hope you enjoy it, and just email Carl if you have questions or if you want to follow up. You can also email me. You can find us on the contact page, and we will see you on the other side. Carl, welcome back to the program. It's been too long. How are things with you? Yeah, great to chat with you again, Adrian. Thanks for the uh, the invite again. Uh, yeah, all good, thanks. Still, as we're all sort of muddling through this uh, the coronavirus pandemic, but yeah, keeping just the right side of sane, I'd say. And everything is good in Toronto? You're, you're in downtown Toronto? Yeah, we're actually in Midtown, yeah. It's it's funny, we went, you know, uh, I don't know if you were aware, but it was a long weekend. We we took a stroll, my my girlfriend and I, we took a stroll 
down into the city. Uh, I, I hasten to add, all masked up and doing our best to obviously socially distance. And uh, and I think it's really the first time since we moved here, which is about uh, over four months ago now, um, that we've had a ch- actually had a chance to sort of get a feel for the city. And yeah, it was surprising how uh, areas that you would normally assume this is this is a Saturday would be, you know, people shopping, etc. It was really not quite tumbleweed quiet, but uh, or ghost town quiet, but it was lovely. And we walked down as far as the lake and had a wander around there. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's nice to be able to sort of feel finally a little bit like we we're actually living in Toronto rather than this rather odd experience of uh, our circle was basically our neighbours next door, which are our socially distanced the, the two bubbles that we we're allowed, I think, under under current health advice. But yeah, sort of finally feeling that we're actually becoming, dare I say, Torontonians. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a double-edged uh, sword. With yourself. <laughs> All good in as well. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's fabulous, actually. It's, we had some nice weather, but it's been kind of a cool July. And uh, the, the hot weather literally returned about five hours ago. You know, it's, we're finally getting the highs of 32, 33. Otherwise, it's sort of like highs of 24, which is okay, but it didn't feel like the full-on summer experience you kind of hoping for. And as far as the virus situation, I mean, you do get the sense that there is a complacence that's going on, like people want to shake your hand, uh, people, it's not universal, but it's common enough. You see big groups of people in the park. It's almost like normal life has returned like 80%. And which is pretty quick. I mean, you're pretty good. And you basically wear a mask. So I kind of think it's going to flare up again. People are traveling a little bit. But overall, I mean, I think we got like 70 infections up from about 30 or 40 that we're averaging. You know, we got 70 yesterday or whatever it was. So it's perking up a bit. But the Europeans seem to have it under control is sort of my impression so far. So life is pretty good. I mean, no, I don't go to bars or I go to restaurants even occasionally, but it's usually outside. Go to a cafe outside, but I generally avoid them. It's sort of like that, you know? Yeah, same here as uh, my father and I would usually, you know, love at least a, once a week if we can to a restaurant. But to be honest with it, it does not in any way appeal to me being inside in a closed environment with, with strangers at the moment, which is obviously the part of the joy of going to a restaurant in the first place is to, yeah, absolutely. Is to take and a bar as well more than happy to go around to the MCBO and pick up a, a decent bottle of rum and, and have your bag at home rather than sort of chanting going into any bars which they seem to be slowly opening up now but um and, and even outside as well the restaurants here they've made space on the road and for those of you who may know uh, Toronto like like yourself Adrian uh, we don't live that far off Young Street so a lot of the restaurants are putting out their tables and chairs literally on the road and, and, and we see people eating there and it's been a scorching summer so far in Toronto oh they're outside they're sweating in this this midday sun and um and they've got cars flying past them and it just looks a hopefully <laughs> attractive environment in which to sit down and have an enjoyable meal so yeah. um yeah more than happy to stick with takeaways at the moment you know, one last thing on this is, uh, do you know the legendary uh, club Bergein? No, no. It's like the world's most, I don't know if it's the world's most famous club, but it's probably Berlin's, definitely Berlin's most famous techno club. Of course, they had to shut down and they reopened as an outdoor, I think they called it a garden party or something last last week. So it's Saturday at four in the afternoon. They had their big reopening outdoors. I never saw it, but 
I was telling my girlfriend we should bike by and just like see what on earth is going on over there. But anyway, so they're starting outdoors. So with that all being said, let's take a look at your article before we run out of time here. Sure. Tell me yep. about this. It's, it's, I, I have the title on it. Canadian Research Program Seeks to Transform Our Understanding of How Ore Bodies Form. And you talk about this really interesting research initiative that's based out of Canada, and it's all about trying to find new ore bodies. Tell us about the article. Yeah, sure, Adrian. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Uh, and again, it's uh, as we've chatted before, uh, as a science writer by by background view, it's fascinating to to find these research uh, programs of this nature that are extremely practically based. Again, taking science and applying it to the real world, which is clearly what geology is, geoscience, etc. So yeah, these chaps at, uh, at the at the university there, at Laurentian University out of Sudbury in Ontario, they've got this large, it's about four years into a seven-year program. It might get extended by an extra year because of the impact the, the COVID has had on their uh, field testing work, which is the crux of the program is going out there. And what they're basically trying to to understand is better understand how all bodies one are formed in the first place and then how can they develop a set of tools or or criteria that allow geologists and mining companies exploration companies prospectors to go out there and more effectively find all bodies that could eventually uh, ideally turn into an economically viable mine and they're doing this through they've got about um Four or five universities in, in Canada, they've got international uh, research centers they're working with as well, and they're also working with the um, Canadian government as well. Uh, in fact, they've got a $104 million um, from the government in terms of or a mix of funding, should I say, but it, it tops up to totals at about $104 million to go out there and, and really help the industry because... Well, I think what, and maybe just a slight segue of what fascinated me about the research here, not just what they're doing, is, but how unlikely it is in the first place to find a, an ore body that becomes economically viable in the first place. I had the impression, obviously erroneously, that we were much, uh, I say we, the industry, was much more effective in finding ore bodies out there, but it's still extremely staggering odds of actually an ore body becoming a mine in the first place. So really the university is attempting to help the industry by providing them with the tools and knowledge to be able to like, differentiate more effectively between an area, that are two areas that are maybe geologically have similar history as well as the, the structures in there as well, but why does an ore body develop in one area and it doesn't in, in another? And of course that's fundamental to the industry without being able to find an ore body, well, <laughs> nothing of value comes out afterwards. Yeah, I would think that's a central problem of mining. It, we might say it's it's tempting to say it's the central problem of mining is how to find a mine, how to find an economically viable ore body, as you, as you guys put it. And what's interesting about what you say is it sounds like the uh, the methods were maybe not the most sophisticated to the point that they're putting this research program together to really try and get a better understanding of how this process is done. Because otherwise, like you say, it's almost like throwing darts in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think where it comes out of as well, and this is a point that was made to me when I interviewed the the director of the of the program, the Metal Earth uh, program, as it's called. He, um, uh, this is Dr. Ross Sherlock, uh, he, he was very clear in pointing out that 
traditionally, the old adage in mine, and I'm sure I'm not breaking any ground with our uh, audience here, but uh, the best way to find a new mine is to look at an old mine or an existing mine. And what they basically say is that this, this can only take you so far. So what you really need to do is be able to uh, expand your exploration activities beyond what, what we call brownfield sites. So these are sites that already have had some form of exploration on there, whether that's led to a mine that's currently operating or a historic mine. Uh, but then actually take it, take that knowledge and provide the, the industry with the tools to go out there and look at greenfield sites where there's traditionally been uh, no mining or no mineral exploration, but then use the same tools and knowledge that you've gathered from a mining area to then apply it to what is not a, currently a mining area or mineral exploration area. And th this is why they, their research is very much focused on what's called the superior uh, craton uh, or craton, which is a huge bulk body of, of rock that spans Quebec and Ontario, right into Minnesota and South Dakota and the States as well. So they really look at the various faults that have occurred and alterations that have occurred within this craton. And then using the knowledge at this more macro level, traditionally miners and mineral exploration, exploration companies have looked at the sort of the more regional, local level at all systems, or all bodies rather. What they're attempting to do with this program is actually look at the much bigger picture, the more macro picture, and look to see at these all systems and how these actual all systems operate and can provide information on areas that could be fruitful ground for finding a an ore body that ideally would eventually turn into a an operating and producing mine. And those are those vast expanses that actually have either no mineralization or or such low mineralization is just not not economically viable with current technology to to go in and find it. So it's really it's taken that much bigger approach, Adrian, to look at what is the more the geological picture of a macro scale, of a large scale, to be able to map these faults, and obviously some of these faults, you know, they 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 go they can go down well over to uh, 120 kilometers into the earth. So to better understand the macro level, to be able to home in on those areas of more enriched mineralization, and as you say, that this is absolutely key to the industry, and so much money is spent on uh, mineral exploration, and a lot of it actually doesn't eventuate into a mine. So it's really it's amazing in a way that. They, I remember when I was uh, speaking with uh, uh, Ross Sherlock, uh, the director of work on this, and also when I chatted with Dave Harkwell afterwards, who's uh, also involved in the project. As mentioned, David Harkwell is the CEO of um, Franco Nevada, um, sure, yeah. the streaming company. And yeah. um, what it struck me with them, and I think they both uh, indicated this or hinted at it, there's an amazing that it's something of this nature hasn't been done before. But notwithstanding that, it's a very involved program. Uh, they, you know, it's a seven year, potentially now stretching away your program. So this is not easy to put all those pieces together to be have something effective. But it's amazing to think that it's, we're, you know, having considered the industry has been, been around for quite some time. It's now that we're looking at this, uh, this type of issue and helping to help the industry. Well, it always seems like the mining industry sometimes is just a little behind on things. So they finally did get the memo and said, hey, maybe we should look at the science of finding ore bodies a little bit more than... Have you heard the term closology? I mean, rather than coming up with closology, which is they're looking for sites next to other mines. So yeah, better late than never. Absolutely. And, but that's it. This is huge, this program. This is nothing really in terms of geoscience has been done on this scale before. 
So they've bitten on it off a you know a big chunk of uh, of the pie here to uh, to have a go at. But uh, they're already showing progress. You know, just over halfway through the program now, and they're already providing a huge body of information that will assist the the industry in achieving the goals of the program, which is basically making the the industry more effective in finding the uh, what is as we as we both agreed is absolutely fundamental of finding not just an ore body but one that is economically viable to to uh, to take the time, money and effort and then to uh, to try to turn it into a, a producing mine. And also as well, I think it's, it's probably worth mentioning as well in terms of what they're trying to do. I was about to ask, so what are they actually doing? You're telling me it gets pretty technical. So give us an overview of just something that, you know, the layman can understand. Sure. And to be honest, with you, being a non, uh, not, not a geologist myself, so I, uh, I don't know that I can go into the ins and outs of the geology too much anyway. Um, but basically, everything is being done from the surface level at the moment. They're very, they're using various uh, techniques like um, seismic surveys, and also looking at what is, uh, and uh, this is a lovely technical terminology they're using. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's called magnetotellurics. Basically, it's just be, be, again with any form of um, exploration beyond drilling, which which sort of stands for itself. You're using a lot of various techniques to to try to understand what is below the surface. So uh, high resolution seismic surveys that you're using, as well as these magnetotellurics, which is basically looking at the the conductivity or the resistivity of the rock below to electrical currents and how those electrical currents then can be translated or interpreted into a metal composition in there. So everything is very much working from the surface. And they've also got a huge amount of data already. This area, this superior graton, is home to um, various mining camps that have been around for uh, for decades. You're talking about uh, Albiti mining areas. Um, you're talking going to Red Lake as well, all within the sort of uh, Ontario, Quebec corridor, this part of this superior plateau. So they've already got a huge amount of information already from exploration and mining that's been carried on this area. They're then adding this or compiling it together with these, these high resolution seismic surveys as well as uh, other geological information on these various fault systems. And they've got loads of these various fault systems that are responsible for these greenstone belts that occur there, which are areas of high mineralization. So basically, by understanding what are the geological processes, what is the geological environment on the, again, on the ore, on the scale of the ore systems rather than individual ore bodies. So much larger areas they're looking at now and how then they could interpret those. Why is that particular area that has a similar geology to another area, but the first one area is enriched or endowed in metals, and another area isn't. What's changed? What what in the evolution of these two areas determined one to become a area of potential metal enrichment and ultimately maybe a producing mine and one that is actually an area that just, just doesn't have mineralization. It's too dispersed throughout the area to make it economically viable there to go in and remove it. So yeah, again, I would encourage the readership to have a look at the, the articles. There's one one uh, picture on there shows these seismic trucks in convoys going around this 
this area of uh, of northwestern Ontario going into Quebec and actually carrying out all this analysis. So they're getting a huge amount of data and they're basically coming up now with maps to allow them to actually say, okay, well, you've got one area of this particular type of geology. Then they can take that knowledge of the geology of that area in one particular part of the world and then in this case, say, North Canada and then take it to a similar area of geology of the Kratons in West Africa, for instance, or even down into South America, uh, and then be able to apply the same principles, okay, this is the an all-body system that we've come up with. I, I'm, I'm rather extrapolating now, Adrian, because I think this is this is where they're heading to rather than where they are at the moment. But that's the intention of it, is, is to use the knowledge that they've gained in this particular area of uh, Ontario and uh, Quebec, and they provide that knowledge out to the industry so they can take it essentially around the world. You know, it sounds like a true scientific enterprise here. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're trying to get something specific and find some kind of universal knowledge, at least about the Kraton, for instance. Just to clarify then, from based on what you know of this program, would you characterize what they're doing as a kind of imaging of, you know, like they send out these, I don't know if you said they're electromagnetic waves, and are they ultimately, are they trying to create images from data? And I use the word images loosely. Sure. I think that's definitely part of it. That's definitely and a major part of it as well is to be able to, as you say, and, and it is imaging. Uh, it is being able to, at the end of the day, and this is one thing that I, I, I notice more and more, the more I uh, read on the industry, the more I interview people in the industry, the more I look at, it's actually a, the old adage, a picture paints a thousand words. Yeah. One image of an old body give you so much more information. So to be able to visualize what's actually going on underground subsurface uh, across these much larger areas, these, as I say, at the scale of all systems, to be able to visualize what's going on and also to be able to understand the, uh, if you add to that, then that knowledge, that visual knowledge, if you will, the evolutionary history of that, say that particular geological formation or, ge or region, then you've got a very powerful tool to be able to then use that knowledge and go further out. And that's, as I understand it from my discussions with Ross Sherlock and David Harkel as well, that's the intention is to use this, uh, to be able to combine all these various threads of knowledge into a set of tools and a set of criteria that would allow you to discriminate. And a major part of that is to be able to visualize actually what's going on. So yeah, imaging is going to be a, is a major and will only increasingly become a major part of what, what they're attempting to do with the program. It's so interesting because if you can understand, say, what's going on in a craton formation, then that's pretty academic science, though, if you know what I mean. Like, I mean, they're kind of saying, hey, there's all this economic benefit. I think there's a quote you have from David Harkwell saying something like the greatest ways to wealth generation in the mining industry is to find new ore bodies and to find new mines. But nevertheless, this seems to have a very academic use. Like, I mean, I would think a hardcore geology scholar would be pretty interested in knowing this information. You know, this isn't purely a practical economic endeavor, like uh, back to this science idea. Tell me about the academic side of this. Like it's Laurentian University and you're talking to Ross Sherlock. Like, tell me about the academic structure of this and, and the academic relevance, if there's anything to say there. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, coming back to your first point, you're absolutely right, Adrian. This is This is fundamental science. This is really going back to the, uh, not quite the drawing board, that's not probably the right metaphor, but 
then really going back to what is the basis of geology and geoscience. And it involves, in terms of the academic side of it, well, maybe coming on to your, the sort of second part of your question there, this is really an academic exercise for sure, but with a very clear intention of actually being able to uh, provide the industry with the, with the knowledge then to go out to become better at what they're doing. And, you know, I make a point in the article as well that really, you know, mining is a wealth creation industry. Uh, roughly in 2018, according to Natural Resources Canada, for instance, you know, we around about 60 metals and minerals are extracted from 200 mines and about 6,500 sand, gravel and stone quarries around Canada are uh, valued at around about $47 billion. Now, notwithstanding the impact of COVID, that is only going to increase in value to the country as long as new ore bodies can be found. So, yes, it's an academic exercise for sure, and um, and it's going and, and it's produced, I think, already around about 160 academic uh, presentations, journal articles, uh, masters and doctoral theses, and it will continue to provide all academia with a huge amount of, of of information. But again, from that subset of that, then we'll ultimately have to go out to the industry as a tool, as guidance, as knowledge. But really, they are going down to the fundamentals at uh, Laurentian University in this case, and, and really positioning themselves, placing themselves as the go-to center, not just in, in Canada, North America, but in the world for mineral research. The, the Mineral Research Exploration Research Center, Merck, for instance, at, uh, who, was, who was the research arm of the Harpool School, uh, School of Mining, um, they are the ones who are leading uh, on this. So, yes, it's an academic exercise, but it, it has to ultimately... As I say, it has to ultimately lead to knowledge that the industry can directly use and take out there to find these ore bodies. And just in terms of just coming about the fundamental science for a minute, so I'm sort of jumping around a bit there, Adrian. But yeah, go ahead. Looking right across the board from the geological and the geophysical and geochemical side of things to understand what are those markers, what are the indicators that say there's a presence of a potential ore body here, or there's a presence of an ore body rather, and it could potentially turn into a mine. That's the kind of information that really the industry uh, desperately needs. And, and I think I pointed in the article as well from some of my research. And again, it's, it's more of an estimation of rule of thumb. It's, it's about a one in a, in a million chance that you're going to find an ore body out there, which, which just still sort of blows me away that it's, it's not daunting at all. And then the chance of it actually, uh, even when you do find something that you, you know, you, you then need to investigate further because it seems like there is some sort of metal or mineral endowment in this area, the chance of it then it, it becoming an actual producing mine is then a one in a thousand. So the industry is really up against it to, to find these new ore bodies. And of course, with the world population increasing, with the move to the green infrastructure, we'll need more and more of the metals of your, your, your scandiums and your lithiums and your cobalt, as well your as copper. Obviously, uh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, precisely. The platinum group metals. All these will have to be found in in bigger quantities at, at, at higher grades as well. If we were able to meet the demand of just you know the, the, the electric vehicles, for instance, or the electrification of the world. So for them to be able to delve into the actual fundamental science, the geology and the geoscience of it, to be able to then build upon that knowledge, it's it's something that, uh, as I said earlier, it's surprising that it's kind of taken till now to do it. But they're really doing this on a scale that the industry is crying out for by providing that fundamental knowledge in which they can build upon. So David Harquell, now you talked to him 
he is a part of this. What's his role here? Is is he helping fund this? Is, what did he tell you and what did your research tell you? Yeah, sure. Um, well, David is on the advisory board of both Florentian University's Harpool School of Earth Sciences, um, which which Merck, the uh, the Mineral Exploration Research Centre, is the mineral deposit research arm of HES, if you will. So that's the research arm that's specifically devoted to mineral research and finding ore bodies. And so David is both on the advisory board of the Laurentian University Harpool School of Earth Sciences, as well as Merck. And through his family's Midas Touch Foundation, they donated around a million dollars of direct funding to the Metal Earth Program as well. So that $104 million that you see there is a combination of government funding, private sector funding as well, and also funding from organizations such as the Harkle Family's Midas Touch Foundation. And David is extremely enthusiastic, not just in terms of the the program itself, uh, clearly you don't stump, stump up a, <laughs> a million dollars if you, if you have more, you have to have more than a passing interest, should we say, in this area. But also as well in the wider sense of it, he's very keen, uh, he, he says it himself when I chatted with him that uh, he's generated his wealth from the mining industry and he wants to give back as much as he can as well. And he's very keen as well on making sure that not only are we providing tools to the industry, but we're actually training the next generation of geoscientists as well. So he's a great advocate, not just for the program, for the mining and mineral exploration industry in general as well, as obviously through his family's trust as well. They, they're great funders of the, uh, of the project as well. And he keeps a very close watch on it as well, discussions with him. Um, yeah, quite frankly, between Ross and uh, David, my interviews, this, this article could have been four or five times longer um, with a lot more detail in it as well, which is something I was sort of trying to avoid, but also as well uh, trying to keep in as much as I can. But, but that's, that's David's, um, David's input in specifically into the Earth Met. Metal program, Adrian. Yeah, it's uh, you can see the enthusiasm. He even left you a comment on the article. Thank you to the Northern Miner for covering this important research project, David Harkwell. So yeah, he sure is enthusiastic, and I think it's great when people give back. And uh, this could really make a difference. Uh, is sort of my impression. You know what this also screams is space. Like, did space come up at all? Final question. Did space come up in any of your conversations? Like, this seems like the kind of information that NASA would be interested in as they're exploring Mars. You know, like the implications are actually quite huge. Like, so, um, yeah, final little question. Did space come up? Yes or no? And did, what do you think of that? Um, funny, no, it didn't come up. That would have been an interesting question to ask him, Adrian, because you're absolutely spot on. We, once we've become more and more familiar with, let's just use Mars as the, the obvious example maybe here, uh, or even the moon or, or, or asteroids, the more that we understand the, uh, the geological process, of course, the geological process is not just confined to the planet Earth. It's the rest of the, uh, the known, uh, known universe as well, or at least within our solar system. So I, 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 I agree. I think there's a, there's a lot of room there. And when I, when I do the follow up, uh, interview with these chaps again, which I'm, I'm pretty convinced will be happening, uh, maybe within the next six months or year as well, because they seem to be really bringing out a lot of information at a great rate. So I'll definitely make a point of asking that. But I, but I agree. I think there's, there's applications of this beyond our own terra firma, so to speak. Yeah, you really are seeing those two vectors uh, start to really head towards each other, space and mining. 
and not just for mining asteroids, but just because, I mean, what it's the nature of the beast. You're going to other, what are you examining when you look at an asteroid? You're looking at a rock, and you, even if it's not economic, that's kind of your subject matter. So yeah, anyways, very fascinating stuff. Okay, well, thank you, Carl. Another uh, slam dunk article here. Uh, keep them coming. We love your science articles, and thanks for being on the program. No, lovely chatting again, Adrian, and um, all the best to you. Look forward to chatting to you soon. All right, you too. You take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Great. Cheers, Adrian. A Northern Miner exclusive, courtesy of Carl A. Williams, senior reporter at the Northern Miner. Thank you again for visiting our humble audio abode. If you ever want to help out the podcast, you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. And also you can share it with your friends. And if you know any students in geology, this is, as you just heard, uh, some pretty cutting-edge stuff that could really help them on their way. Maybe it's just a factoid you bring up at an interview that just hits the right neuron, that person hiring. Until next week, take care.